Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again, but then again, I always say that, but there's a reason for it, because uh, number one, I enjoy podcasting, and two, I'm very thankful for all of you who have been faithful listeners to my uh, podcast episodes. Uh, You are the ones that are um, keeping this uh, journey going strong, and not only Uh, for just listening, but by spreading the word out as well. And when all of that happens, um, good things will come in in all sizes, big and small. So I'm very uh, thankful to all of you, my um, sincere, loyal uh, listeners. Well, we are near the end of I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the killing that shocked a new nation. When I was on the air with you all, the previous night, we um, we were um, exposed to um, some history that was not uh, pleasant. We were exposed to um, something that many of us didn't want to believe could happen, but yet sadly it did, especially even if it meant involving someone who was of high-profile status. Well, for starters, we know Mr. With or I should say Mr. George Wythe, has uh, passed away. But to make matters worse, the star witness, who could have um, easily um, given the jury everything they wanted, was forbidden, all in the name because of race. And that was a travesty unto itself. And so... What we all should keep in mind is that it wasn't so much that George Wythe had died. It was the fact that there were laws on the books that had been around for a very long time that prohibited African Americans from testifying in a court of law against um, white people. I do believe that many in Richmond wanted a guilty verdict. But yet at the same time, there were many, not only just in Richmond, but elsewhere throughout the state of Virginia, who probably did not know about the uh, laws on the books. In other words, they may have known about the laws, but they didn't realize how far back they went. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing, we're going to be learning um, about the black and white legal codes of the uh, early 18th century and how they carried over into the start of the 19th century, around the time uh, George Wythe passes away. We will also discuss George Wythe's uh, legacy. There may be some complexities that you all will uh, find out, and some of those complexities may not be to what we have envisioned up until now, but at the same time, we also must remember that... um, that many of our forefathers did struggle with sensitive issues, just like we do in today's time. Many of them dealt with slavery. Many of them, unfortunately, were not able to escape the institution. But in this podcast session, we might find um, something very unique about Mr. With that would actually surprise us all, and in return, it will... um, actually make us get a better understanding of how he himself, Mr. With, that is, 
was able to uh, take a stand on a very uh, sensitive matter for its time prior to his death being none other than slavery. So here we go, folks, with our first uh, leadoff uh, question. How long had the statutes, and when I say statutes, I mean written laws, how long had the statute prohibiting African Americans, regardless of whether they were free or enslaved, how long had the statute been on the books in Virginia that prohibited free and enslaved African Americans from testifying against whites in a criminal trial? Well, the law itself, folks, had been in place throughout Virginia since 1732. And by the time George Wythe died in 1806, this law was nearly three-fourths of a century old. So, you know, 1732 and George Wythe dies in 1806, that law had been on Virginia's books for 74 years, but we were just a year shy of a quarter of a of three-fourths of a century. Now, I should also, I also find it interesting that 1732 was also the same year that uh, George Washington was born, the father of our country. And of course, George Wythe, believe it or not, would have been six years old by the time that the law itself uh, prohibiting uh, African Americans free or enslaved from uh, testifying against whites in a criminal trial. Now, while city slaves had good relations, or let alone their relations were successful in terms of having uh, strong business ties to white Richmonders whom worked and lived in the heart of the city, while all of that was great, another sector within the white society was felt very different about the uh, mixed diversity that was uh, coexisting between um, city slaves and um, and whites of uh, different class statuses, perhaps what we might think of as either middle class or uh, lower middle class to to uh, the lowest of uh, classes in, um, in society. I mean, after all, you know, Richmond as I should remind you all, was a uh, city that um, thrived on gambling, prostitution, uh, a lot of um, activities that um, that at one time would have been considered hideous, uh, risque, um, lascivious, what do you call it, um, lascivious, meaning, um, what do you call it, behavior that was just so unbe unbecoming that it would have uh, eroded all the... Um, essential uh, moral fabrics of society. But this other other sector within uh, the white society, most notably uh, plantation owners to families and individuals of high-profile status, not only disliked the city's mixed-race population, but truly felt that African Americans simply could not be trusted, meaning that they would lie under oath not only to help themselves escape punishment, but also preventing extended family members as well from being, um, from having to uh, face um, their untimely, or to face um, the proper punishment for a crime. I really do believe, folks, that, um, that by the time 
you know, 1780, the capital has moved to Richmond. We're still in, in the American Revolutionary War. But I really do believe that while, yes, Richmond is a unique city, but when the capital shifted from Williamsburg to Richmond, it is very fair to say that the transition itself was not as, probably not as smooth as many would have envisioned. After all, Williamsburg was where everyone wanted to go. Uh, Williamsburg was the place for when, say, the the House of Burgesses, or after 1776 when it became the um, General Assembly, when when the legislature was in session, people did come. People came for a variety of reasons. Yes, some of the same reasons like they would have uh, for Richmond, but the setting was just not the same when it moved to uh, Rich, when the capital relocated to Richmond, and even Mr. With himself uh, was not one to um, shy away from his feelings on the uh, tr uh, transition from, um, from uh, Williamsburg to Richmond, that is. But I will have to admit, folks, that um, there is a lot of uh, rushing to judgment here. Now, of course, I wasn't, you know, we weren't alive in the 19th century. But if you asked me, was there a rush to judgment? Absolutely. You know, we look at uh, Lydia Broadnax, for example. Lydia Broadnax did not fall into a criteria of society who, um, who uh, would have gone along with those, or let alone have gotten herself involved with a crowd of people who thrived on uh, conflict, who thrived on manipulation, thrived on making other people's lives miserable. You know, Lydia Broadnecks was a very well-respected woman, not only by people of her race, but, you know, by many uh, within the white community. After all, she was George Wythe's personal servant. I mean, she literally uh, sacrificed her life to ensure that Mr. Wythe would be well looked after, considering his wife had died in 1787 before moving to Richmond. And after all, Mr. Wythe was not the same person when his wife of nearly 32 years died. After all, it was Elizabeth Taliaferro Wythe who ran the home in Williamsburg. She pretty much controlled the finances. Uh, she uh, ran a lot of the day-to-day -day operations in the house. And when she died... Mr. Wythe did everything there was and hit on his end to do what she was so successful at doing, but even he himself admitted that it was just not the same. In other words, his wife Elizabeth had a very, very magic uh, touch to getting things done. But as I mentioned from a pre the previous podcast, if I had been alive during this t during that time, you know, it's easier said than done, but I would not have been afraid to have taken a stand and um, introduced a bill in the state legislature stating that, hey, if a family owns X number of slaves and they have uh, been proven to have performed um, outstanding service within the home and say a family member was murdered by a deranged uh, black sheep member of the family and the slave had valuable testimony, had valuable uh, information to, to pro provide on the, on the jury stand or, or on the uh, courtroom stand. If that slave, him or herself, had performed outstanding work, then why not give him or her that opportunity? Of course, there would be, 
more than likely, I'm sure there would have been others who would have probably shot down my proposal, but I would have certainly um, not lost without any excuses in trying because there, there were exceptions, and this was a very unique exception. After all, folks, you know, George Wythe sacrificed so much for his country, he should have been given some better justice. Remember, folks, you know, George Wythe Sweeney has gotten off all because of a technicality in a outdated um, justice system in Virginia that um, still feels that people of one race cannot testify against the race of a uh, being uh, the race above them. You know, as much as I love history, I am reminded of the fact that it's not always pretty. And this is an example here, folks, where um, where the history was not pretty. However, I still do believe that we have an opportunity, before I finish this uh, book review with you all, to come away with some good, valuable lessons. But I also do believe that while we are going to learn some hard truths here momentarily about George Wythe and his uh, views on slavery from years past, I do believe that there still will be an opportunity come the end of this podcast episode where George With will where George With himself was able to redeem his um stance towards the institution and while he while the institution itself was still around by the time he died I do believe it is fair to say that even before he died he was not afraid to take a stand on a very sensitive subject I've said it once, but I'll say it again. So, this sec- the sector of white society, most notably being the plantation owners to those of high-profiled high status, yes, they didn't like the, facts, the fact that there was a, a high concentration of um, mixed-race population in Richmond, but they truly just believed that African Americans weren't capable of being honest about anything in general. That's why they felt that African Americans simply could not testify against whites in any court of law, whether it was federal, state, county, or local. That, to me, is quite a rush to judgment. This could be also a good example of where ignorance has really um, shown itself at its worst. And I will have to admit that we still do see Ignorance in today's unstable world for a variety of reasons. But I'm not afraid to admit that sometimes we do see uh, ignorance when it comes to. um, When it comes to um, racial matters or racial incidents that have especially occurred within the last year. It doesn't make it right, but it still goes on. However, what we can do is we need to learn from those mistakes so that we as individuals um, not only can learn from what happened, but also educate ourselves to realize that, hey, we are better than that. If we know we're better than that, then don't be, don't follow into that other person's footsteps. It's bad enough that the other person is ignorant, but do you need to be ignorant just like them? No. Not only was Lydia Broadnax prohibited from taking the witness stand to testify, but all 
the information she had available regarding Sweeney's pouring of arsenic powder into the coffee also became prohibited to where white witnesses themselves could not share her information. So the bottom line is this, folks. Lydia Broadnax had shared all of this essential information to people as high up as Mayor William Duvall, who, who truly did believe her. She told it to the three doctors, doctors James McClurg, James McCall, and William Fauci, the most respectable doctors not only in Richmond, but in the nation as a whole and around the world. And yet here they screwed up George Wythe's autopsy. It's bad enough they messed up his autopsy. So I almost hate to say this, if they messed up his autopsy so bad to where they only focused on one part of his body, why would any of us think that they would have been willing to have shared Lydia's information when they took the stand? They weren't looking after anybody else. All they, were, all they cared about were themselves as individuals and about one another as this trio that could not do anything wrong. I feel for Lydia Broadnecks, I really do. But I also feel for those who are of white status who so much badly wanted George with Sweeney found guilty, who wanted Lydia to testify, who wanted Lydia to, to be the one that could have um, performed the slam dunk that would have said, hey, he's guilty, being George with Sweeney, lock him up, and maybe just this time there be an exception. Wouldn't we all have wanted an exception? But of course, then you would have had those whom would have said, well, if we, have, if we give Lydia Broadnax an exception, we'll have to give everyone else of the opposite race an exception. You know, I, I don't like telling some of this, folks, but this is the best way I can go about sharing what I feel is worth sharing as long as it's done in a constructive manner. Considering just how long the laws themselves prohibiting African-American testimony had remained in Virginia's books dating back to 1732, what famous Virginian himself had allowed those laws to stay permanent? I hate to tell you all this, folks, but that answer is George Wythe. Now, I know many of you all are wondering, Kirk, you have talked about George Wythe as if he was this perfect man who couldn't do anything wrong, even though, yes, he owned slaves, but yet now all of a sudden we're being told by you based off of this book that Bruce Chadwick wrote, that George Wythe had been responsible. I mean, he wasn't the only person. I'm sure there were others. But that he was part of a greater network of um, prominent men, perhaps uh, members of the House of Burgesses, who allowed this law to stay on record almost three-fourths of a century after it was first um after it was first enacted into law. Well, 
we must remember, folks, too, that even, our, as I said earlier, that our forefathers did live in complicated times. And while, yes, we can say that we can always argue and say, why didn't they take more of a stand? Sometimes that's easier said than done. I think we're all put into situations where at first it's hard to take a stand on something. But at the same time, we also don't know what, what we could end up inheriting that could perhaps delay the um, ability to take the um, official stand on a sensitive matter. I could tell you for starters, and I've said it before and I'll say it here again, that whenever my wife and I have gone to Williamsburg and watched George Washington, uh, the man who portrays George Washington speak, People from time to time will ask him, what is your stance on slavery? And he says this, I have no comment on it. In other words, George Washington married into the institution. After all, his wife Martha was the wealthiest woman in Virginia. If he says anything that is sensitive about the matter, not only um, could it backfire on him as an individual, but, if, but it could also backfire um, to where... It would impact Martha's position in the community. Basically, it's a situation where whatever he said or says can and would be used against him. So, as for George With, for starters, With himself owned slaves throughout a majority of his life. And it is fair to say that um, his involvement directly with the institution of slavery lasted nearly 40 years from around 1748 which they know was his first um, legal transaction with the involve regarding the involvement of the uh, practice itself up until the late 1780s most notably around 1787 1788 so I'll, I'll let me explain, better explain this here. As I've already said that, yes, George With himself owned slaves throughout a majority of his life. It, the following um, I can tell you is this. It, when he lived in Williamsburg, when he and um, Elizabeth Taliaferro lived in Williamsburg, they owned anywhere from 10 to 20 slaves. And, of course, when uh, With ran the... Uh, Chesterville plantation, given he was from Chesterville, which is now Hampton, there was an unspecified number of slaves that he owned at that plantation. However, by the late 1780s, he freed uh, Lydia Broadnax and three other slaves whom belonged to him. There were 11 other slaves but he uh, was forced to uh, return them um, to the um, Talia Farrow family as part of a uh, contract as part of a contract obligation agreement matter. Now we should also remember too that during this forty-year period where With is involved with the institution of slavery, George With is already a high-profile person as as it is. But during the 1750s, he, he is a member of the House of Burgesses, most notably around 1755. That's when he um, gets uh, first elected to the House of Burgesses. And then within a few short years after, um, between 1758-1759, he becomes mayor of Williamsburg, along with serving as a vestryman at Bruton Parish Church, or let alone... Uh, the, 
and uh, what do you call it, an Anglican um, parish um, outlet of the greater Church of England. So, yes, George Wythe may be a slave owner, but his status increases based off of some of the positions I just mentioned a moment ago. So, yes, he is dependent upon the institution, but even with himself, and I know some of you would say this may not make it as an excuse, but even with himself has to be very careful about what he says out in the open, because like George Washington, whatever he says can and would be used against him. So it really is a double-edged sword. But what we do know is that in private, George Wythe does have a lot of mixed feelings about this um, institution. However, while he does benefit from slavery itself, over time, his views towards the institution changes. But these changes don't happen overnight. The period from 1777 to 1779, I had, and I talked about this from an earlier podcast, this is the time frame that George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and Edmund Pendleton go about revising all of Virginia's laws. However, there are there is an exception, and that is to the existing slave statutes, like prohibiting them from testifying against whites in a courtroom. Some of you are wondering why um, why was this not one, why was this particular one not reformed? Well. First off, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, as I've said in many of other uh, podcasts, not only in this uh, subject, but in some other ones. Given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, she has a lot to gain and a lot to lose. So there again, that's a double-edged sword right there. But this, the trio of With Jefferson, and Pendleton didn't believe that the time was right to reform those laws, Given that Virginia, like the other 12 colonies, were at war with England, and this is just my take on it here, and I do believe that maybe the trio was very fearful of uprisings that could uh, take place um, from within the outside um, city, that is, from within the outside of Williamsburg uh, to uh, towns surrounding Williamsburg, but even in places well west of Williamsburg, where, where say, uh, slaves in the western part of the state or could have um, teamed up with Indians who were on the uh, frontiers, most notably uh, Cherokee, um, to uh, the Shawnees, whose uh, territory stretched from Ohio into what we now know as Winchester, Virginia, and even into uh, Fredericksburg, where they could have um, led um, led a rebellion with with Indians to where um, uprisings would have taken place, where um, white families would have been displaced um, to uh, to uh, the result of uh, being uh, dead. Now I know that even my answers are not uh, pleasing, and I get that. But I also have to think to myself, you know, what the trio's thinking was at this time. I do believe deep down in their hearts that they probably did want to um, reform uh, the existing laws regarding slavery-related uh, matters. 
I think the biggest problem, perhaps, for the, for the TRIA was, okay, that if we do change the laws here, what's going to happen when the time comes when the war itself ends? After all, we don't know when the war against England will end. I mean, of course, we all know that the British surrendered at Yorktown in 1781, but that's not on the minds of um, most notably Virginians during this time between 1777 and 1779. After all, the British um, begin their war, begin their uh, what you call southern campaign starting in 1778. So the biggest thing for the trio is really... Um, not just reforming the laws, but ensuring that uh, the state of Virginia is uh, securely um, defended to the best of its ability. And of course, there are slaves who are fighting um, on the side of um, the Patriots. But the biggest fear is that if the British were to launch um, a frontal assault on Virginia, what would they do more than anything else? And this was um, this happened a few years earlier when Lord Dunmore, the last royal governor of Virginia, not only had he dissolved the House of Burgesses, but he encouraged slaves to rebel against their masters to where they um, formed what was called the Ethiopian Regiment, whom fought at the Battle of uh, Great Bridge in December of 1775. So we must keep in mind, folks, that there are, there are a lot of unknowns that the trio is being faced with. And while these are unpleasant issues, they are trying to deal with them to the best of their ability, even if it means not, uh, even if it means not being able to please everyone else. However, I can point this out, and I will say it here again. It is very fair to say, though, that because the existing laws from 1732 remained intact. George Wythe's grandnephew walked away a free man. The elder Wythe never thought he would be a victim of crime. So remember, folks, here we were reforming all well over 100 existing laws in Virginia. But little did George Wythe ever know that one day from now, he would be the victim of a crime, not from the outside, but from within the inside, meaning a family member wanted him dead. Now, the period from 1777 to 1779 also saw with Jefferson and Pendleton reform state capital punishment system to where death sentencing guidelines required significant proof of guilt. So, in other words, if you stole something from someone, yeah, they could brand you, but if it happened again, Prior to the war breaking out, you you were hung. That was it. You had already pretty much um, abused um, your, you pretty much uh, wasted your uh, second chance opportunities. So the trio, to sum it up here, were advocates of clemency, meaning um, forgiveness, um, even in cases of murder. You know, we all want people to have a second chance. We all do want to believe that people who have committed, say, unpleasant crimes can find a way to um, learn from them and perhaps over time be, in some cases, depending on the severity of the crime, maybe released back into society where 
for one, we hope that they have gotten um, proper therapy and help to where they will no longer be a threat to the greater public. But here again, folks, little did George Wythe know that one day his life would be at stake to where many people wanted his murderer hanged in effigy. Only to be denied because of past existing laws, which still forbade which still prohibited slaves from testifying against whites. You know, law reforms can be good, but even those whom reform them can't always be immune from anything unexpected, regardless of the circumstances at hand. You know, early on when we started talking about this um, book series, George Wythe had seen plenty of uh, troubled youth during his time as a judge. And while he saw many troubled youth over time get their act together to where they became productive citizens of society, what I do believe George Wythe failed to realize is that while, yes, he saw many productive, um, well, he saw many uh, young adolescents turn their lives back around in the right direction, unfortunately, Luck was not on his side to where his grandnephew made it into that criteria. In other words, his grandnephew wasn't just so much the black sheep of the family. His grandnephew didn't care about his mistakes. He abused free will. He didn't care how his actions impacted not only his great uncle or Lydia Broadnax. He didn't care about what the rest of Richmond society thought. He was just living... And I, he, he lived life under the I, me, myself attitude. It doesn't make it right, but he did. And sadly, you know, what I have to remind myself is that you don't always have to come from a bad home to be a bad person. There are stories where sometimes I've heard where someone came from a good home, got involved with the wrong crowd of people, made bad decisions to the point where it... Um, caused so much strife to where the family as a whole no longer could have ties, direct ties to that individual. Good example, as I've said before, was with uh, John Adams' son, Charles, who was a drunk, abandoned his family more than once to the point where John Adams himself had to disown his son. It was a it, very unfortunate thing, but you know what? It just goes to show that, um, that families, even in um, the times that our forefathers lived, dealt with very, very um, tough, unpleasant issues that involved family members who chose to be ignorant, who chose to make life miserable for everyone else, even when when others knew they came from a good home and were not exposed to improper uh, forms of behavior. Was was the prosecution's case? Of course, the prosecutor was William was uh, Philip Norburn Nicholas. But was the prosecution's case against George With Sweeney doomed from the start? Yes, in large part because nobody physically saw in their eyes Sweeney pouring arsenic into the coffee, whereas Lydia Broadnax, With's personal servant, couldn't testify due to her race. And as for the will document itself, which 
George Wythe himself had changed right before he died, revoke, you know, cutting off his grandnephew altogether. But before that happened, the will itself stated that if uh, Sweeney died before Michael Brown and Lydia Broadnax did, then they would be entitled to their share of his estate. But the but the point is, with regards to the will, is that family members from everywhere had removed someone out of the will for multiple reasons. So yes, the prosecution could state until they were blue in the face why George Wythe had removed his grandnephew, but it would not have been enough to have resulted in a conviction. All evidence available was circumstantial at best, a.k.a. not 100% definitive. Or I should say, 100, it was not 100% definitive proof. And as for the ratsbane poison, which George Wythe Sweeney used to turn into arsenic, everyone in Richmond had it. Why, or how so? For dealing with rat infestation problems. But while the substance itself was found in Sweeney's room, it didn't mean he was automatically found guilty of murder. After all, the defense said, per William Wirt's leadership, that, hey, just because Swift, just because Sweeney owned, uh, possessed ratsbane poison, if you were to charge him with possessing uh, ratsbane poison, then you would have to charge everyone else in Richmond with it. In other words, if you were going to uh, find him guilty and hang him for that, then you would have to hang everyone else. Of course, yes, 9 out of 10 people in Richmond at the time were probably right in saying that they were using the rat's bane to uh, get rid of the rat infestation problems. But who's not to say that there would have been one person who was using it for the opposite? Think about that one, folks. While the jurors in the case wanted to believe Sweeney was guilty of murder, they also didn't have enough evidence to go by. I find that hard to... I find that hard to believe, all because of the um, ridiculous laws that were on the book prohibiting Lydia Broadnax because of her race from being able to testify. But yet, there again, these jurors were forced to adhere to laws from 1732. There you have it, folks. Now you almost have to wonder, what, what's the point in even having a trial if you already knew what the outcome was going to be? Well, as I said earlier from a previous podcast, that uh, everyone was entitled to the to have um, the right to a fair and speedy trial, and of course we do have John Adams to thank for that from the Boston Massacre trials of 1770. But I'm sure if John Adams, uh, of course John Adams was still living at this time, but um, and of course he had a lot of regards for George With, but I'm not so sure if even Adams himself knew about these laws regarding um, the slave laws that dated back to 1732. If he, somehow, if he did find out about them, I'm sure he would have been just beside himself. Were the press and public shocked by the courtroom verdict? Yes. Considering how much evidence there was against Wythe's grandnephew, but also at the state's racist laws, which in the eyes of many Virginians and outsiders were viewed as ludicrous to being downright irrelevant. So in other words, irrelevant meaning that it's, that it's just useless. It has no meaning. It's, it's not um, valid. It's, um, 
It's the opposite of what's real and what's truthful and meaningful. If I was alive, let's say I was not in the legislature, but if I was alive during this during the time of Wythe's death, if someone said to me, Kirk, do you think these laws regarding slavery and slaves not being allowed to testify against whites in a courtroom dating back to 1732, do you think they are outdated and irrelevant? My response would have been yes. Um, rightfully so, because, um, you know, times have changed. But of course, you know, Virginia still is the largest of the 13 states. And as I said before, and I could say it again, Virginia being the largest of the 13 states not only has a lot to gain, but also a lot to lose. Now, for many years, Southerners, including people of Richmond, Virginia, lived in fear with regards to being murdered either by foreigners or slaves. But in the case involving George Wythe, the greater public had gotten it wrong, and they sure did. Considering his murder revolved around a family member, otherwise known as the Black Sheep, whom escaped death because of legal reform changes that were sadly instituted. Well, the, the legal reform changes that I'm getting at here, folks, are... Um, uh, we call it uh, reducing uh, capital punishment, easing the um, the guidelines for what constitutes um, for for crimes that constitute um, getting a capital punishment sentence. So George With Sweeney escaped death because of legal reform changes instituted by his great uncle, being that of George With. And, and of course, I've said it twice. I'll say it again. Little did George Wythe know that the reforms that he and Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Pendleton put into play would come back and get one of them in ways they never imagined. Acts of murder during this time were often associated with people not knowing one another directly, but when it involved family, shockwaves could be felt from everywhere. Especially two weeks before Wythe himself was poisoned, I had mentioned from an earlier podcast a man named Abel Clements, whom uh, was living, of course, he, he and his family lived in what we now know West Virginia, but at the time it was considered um, Morgantown, Virginia. Well, what did Mr. Clements do? He murdered his family in the most gruesome way possible. No one had ever, um, no one had ever, read about a heinous crime like this one. Uh, he murdered his eight, seven or eight children and wife, and he did get sentenced for it. And rightfully so, but yet George With Sweeney's um, killer gets away scot-free because of a uh, technicality. Makes no sense. But yes, when... Um, a murder uh, itself took place involving family, that is direct family, then yes, shockwaves could have been felt from everywhere. Did President Jefferson's personality change after George Wythe's murder? Remember, folks, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson adored George Wythe. He thought the world of him. Matter of fact, George Wythe was his, uh, you know, law professor at William & Mary. And Jefferson... Um, Yes, his personality did change after Wythe had died. He uh, often admitted to having an empty void. 
considering that Mr. With himself had been like a father figure to him. You know, George With lost his dad when he was three years old. Thomas Jefferson was 14 when he lost his father. So they both, um, they both bonded over several things. And, of course, George With, you know, he, he loved all of his students whom he taught, but Jefferson was up there in the top five. Is George With buried in Richmond? Yes, he's buried at St. John's Cemetery, located adjacent to St. John's Episcopal Church, where Patrick Henry, another prominent Virginian and let alone forefather, gave his famous speech. Most of us know it, but I can tell you this much, that uh, Patrick Henry was influenced by a famous um, Roman philosopher named Cato. Matter of fact, the play Cato itself was the most popular in the 18th century. George Washington loved Cato, the play that is. He probably was an admirer of Cato, his, too. But Cato said something that uh, Patrick Henry took, and Patrick Henry used it in conveying a very powerful speech at St. John's Episcopal Church in 1775. I know... Not what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. So when I think of St. John's Episcopal Church, I tend to think of Patrick Henry, but I also know um, that I can also think of George Wythe. George Wythe's cemetery overlooks the James River in Richmond, the city he did come to love in the same way that he did uh, Williamsburg. Well, I want to uh, sum up this uh, podcast episode by trying to explain how George Wythe, him, as an individual, did redeem himself, and how, while yes, he struggled privately with the institution of slavery, but somehow a four-letter word called time was on his side to where he did make amends with how he viewed the institution and how the last 20 years of his life he devoted to going above and beyond to wanting the institution itself abolished. Being the first in Virginia, if I had to pick someone else who came close to doing it, and he actually, um, the book I'm reading now um, is called First Emancipator, being about Robert Carter III, the man who um, who performed one of the most uh, bold and uh, courageous acts in Virginia by freeing over 400 of his slaves. But as for George Wythe, let's find this, let's learn about this. Although a good portion of George Wythe's life did revolve around being directly involved with the institution of slavery, should he still be acknowledged for taking a stand against it in his later years? Yes, for starters, he had treated his slaves very humanely. But where he saw equal opportunities for blacks and whites rested upon education itself. With himself went as far as educating blacks in the same manner as his white students were accustomed to. He even taught law to Michael Brown, the 16-year-old protege student who sadly died the week before him. 
And yes, he taught, uh, he educated blacks in the same manner as his white students had been accustomed to. He became a firm believer in abolishing slavery through means of simple abolition, which would have required freedom of slaves without any means of deportation or removal from their current dwellings, or let alone settings, to somewhere else foreign to where they would not have known how to adjust. So in other words, simple abolition, no deportation or removal, you still stay in the same area that you live, that you've been living in, but yet you should be entitled to the same freedoms that your white counterparts have. With never left his slaves behind, meaning Lydia Broadnecks, for example, had a place of lodging right near or adjacent to the judge's home, with always paid Lydia for her services and saw to it that others paid her for services she performed. So in other words, George With and Lydia Broadnax looked after one another. Neither one of them took advantage of the other. They both treated each other with the utmost respect that the opposite would have wanted. So I just don't understand for the life of me that, hey, if Lydia Broadnax went above and beyond to look after George With, why didn't she deserve to have an opportunity to testify against George With Sweeney? I really do believe that many in Shaco Hill did not like what George With stood for in the last 20 years of his life. They may not have told him openly that they didn't like it, but they probably went behind his back and criticized him left and right for doing so. To me, this is ignorance. This is also an example of what, I, what I've often hear the phrase being so close but so far away. Yes, With had was close to many people in Shaco Hill, but is it truly fair to say that those people really could have been his true friends? I mean, yes, friends don't always have to agree on everything, but they don't need to go stab each other in the back to where if a wrong has been committed that it ruins the friendship to where um, trust itself cannot be regained. I do. George With's death should still matter to us because, for one, he took a stand against slavery during the final 20 years of his life, but yet he found a way to break away completely from the institution itself to where he no longer depended upon it for survival, most notably between 1787 and 1788. And while the laws on the books regarding slavery still remained intact, it's fair to say that with not... That with not tragic that with himself not not only did he tragically die by poisoning well let me repeat this here <laughs> it's fair to say that had with not tragically died by poisoning he would have continued his quest for abolishing slavery in phases so in other words we'll never know if he was a able to truly hit a grand slam out of the ballpark but he would have kept fighting until the day he died. I do believe that, I do truly wonder if the doctors had been, had been wise enough to have performed an, an operation on him, that maybe he would have lived a few more years. We'll never know, but what we do know is that he did break away from the institution. And while, yes, there were laws on the books, we still 
he still had every right to believe that he never would have been a victim of crime. So we all we still have to remind ourselves that uh, while yes the re- the reforms that he and Jefferson and, Ed- and Edmund Pendleton went about enacting while they were great, law reforms don't always mean that um, that your safety and well being will always supersede or uh, be immune from anyone else's uh, jealousies from outside and inside. Outside meaning those you don't know, or inside being that of family. But George Wythe's death, once again, to me, it matters because, you know, he did take a stand. you got to give him credit for that. And he did find a way to break away from the institution itself altogether. And he did go about educating African Americans in the same manner he did with uh, his white uh, students at William from his time at William and Mary, he wanted people of all races to have a productive life. After all, his mother wanted him to uh, fight for those who couldn't fight for themselves. So we must uh, agree and we must admit that George Wythe was willing to fight for those whom could not fight for themselves. He may have had his own way of doing it, but it did prevail. And so therefore, um, as tragic as his death was, he did leave behind a good legacy. He is a forefather who at times has been forgotten. But we must remember that his presence in Philadelphia in 1776 and for the time he was there in 1787 must not be ignored. He is a giant in his own way. Well, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, it will be the uh, final segment to I Am Murdered. And we are going to learn about, we're going to learn about those whom um, were involved in this um, crime. In other words, the, um, the doctors. We're going to learn about what their lives were like after this trial. We're going to learn, we're going to even learn about, more about George Wythe Sweeney. And what happened to him in the years after this, um, after his, after murdering his great uncle. And I think it should also be pointed out that we should also learn more about, about the dangers of ignorance, in our society, in the society of uh, the early nineteenth century, and how ignorance itself is still prevalent today. But that ignorance itself is something that, if gone unchecked, it can make people do things that are so unbecoming to where it defines them for the rest of their life. So I thank you all for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon with the uh, final uh, podcast episode of Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. Take care and stay safe.